1: Big guess. The big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3. 770 CHQR.
2: Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Thursday afternoon. And I have to stress that it is Thursday because it might start to sound a lot like Wednesday. Once we start getting into a conversation about an opposition motion to be voted on in Parliament, the possibility that this could be a confidence motion. Yes, that all happened yesterday and uh, the government is still standing for now. The Conservatives, though, have another motion they want to bring forward that is similar in a lot of ways and we may be headed to yet another showdown. Joining us uh, for the latest uh, right off the top here is to what happened yesterday, how things are shaping up today. Our chief political correspondent for Global News, David Aiken, joining us uh, from the nation's capital. David, good afternoon.
1: Hey, how you doing, Rob? Good to talk.
2: Well, likewise, appreciate you making some time for us here today. So are, are we headed to uh, another showdown here, another possible confidence vote?
1: Right now, the 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 the, uh, the feeling, and I, I'm sorry, I got to go into gut feeling because uh, politicians are still feeling around here trying to size up what's going on. Is no, uh, yesterday's motion was different in a really significant way. Uh, yesterday's motion from the Conservatives was to create a new parliamentary committee, and among the things that new parliamentary committee would be doing would be to looking into the business affairs of the Prime Minister's family, specifically not just his wife, Sophie, but also his mother, uh, his brother. And by my read of things, that's the line in the sand for the Prime Minister, and that's why he was prepared to plunge the country into an election had that committee been created. What the House is now considering, again, this is from the Conservatives, from, as it turns out, from uh, Calgary MP Michelle Rempel-Garner, is... A motion that would tell the government, listen, we want to know what you've been doing on PPE, personal protective gear, on ventilators. What about these contracts? How are you prepared for this pandemic? All the health questions around the federal government's response to COVID-19. And um, Michelle Rempel-Garnel, uh, we just call her Michelle Rempel. I'll just call her Michelle Rempel sure. from here on out. She wants some detailed information, very specific information, and quite a bit of information. And so the motion that she has put to forward to Parliament right now says, uh, we'd like to have all this stuff about the government's contracts, uh, who it's getting this stuff from, how much you paid for it, when did you know you needed this and that. She wants all this information within 15 days um that's that's what the motion says so far the government's response is basically along the lines of listen we're we're happy to give you this stuff we'll do our best to get it to you but getting getting it to you in 15 days is going to be really tough because some of the people this is the government talking who are involved in dealing with this information are really on the front lines of dealing with the pandemic so you see the differences here the, the the one yesterday that involved the confidence vote was about Trudeau's family, personal family members. Today, it's really about the government's overall response and bureaucrats and this and that. And there seems to be some willingness or acknowledgement by the government that, yes, uh, this is a legitimate uh, avenue of, of investigation by the, the opposition. And the government will try to provide that information to the opposition, to Parliament, to Canadians, but, but it just might take a little more than 15 days. And so we will see as the debate occurs, uh, the discussion about this, uh, where we go. The vote, This vote on the, today's motion, the one from Michelle Rempel, is, uh, will not take place until next week. So we, we certainly got a few days for people to sort of sift through this, consider this, um, before there might be any declarations.
2: Well, let's talk about what happened yesterday. And as, as you mentioned, the liberals were quite insistent in this uh, new committee and its, its proposed mandate not go forward. Uh, and so they played this, this card, which really escalated things, to say that we're going to view this as a confidence yeah. motion. Uh, the New Democrats uh, opted to side with the government so as to preclude the possibility of an election. But what's your sense, David, of how serious the liberals were about possibly going to the polls? Was this a bluff? How, how, you know, what, what was behind this?
1: Well, they have told everybody, on the record, off the record, senior sources, whatever you want to call it, the liberals wanted to make sure everybody knew that they were serious, that had that committee been formed to probe into the prime minister's family's business dealings with the WE charity, uh, Trudeau was going to call an election on it. And, uh, and, and he, he, again, this was the, the, the prime minister's call here. We've never, ever had an election called... Uh, or a confidence vote called over the creation of a parliamentary committee. It would have been a first. And listen, I know NDP leader Jagmeet Singh may take a lot of heat, particularly from, you know, say, conservative supporters who want an election. They want a chance to beat Trudeau up. Fine. But Jagmeet Singh said about the prime minister, that was absurd. That was his phrase. Absurd. It's outrageous that in the middle of a pandemic, Justin Trudeau was ready to plunge the country into an election and the issue at hand would have been the creation of a committee that simply wanted to ask some questions about the WE charity and about the prime minister's family's connection to that charity. That's nonsense. That's Jugmeet Singh. And here's the other thing that's important about the NDP position is saying it wasn't a binary choice. It wasn't have an election or get to the bottom of the WE thing. Jagmeet Singh saying, we can avoid an election and keep on doing things which Canadians are kind of counting on in terms of, for example, making sure that we get the legislative approval for some financial assistance to those with disabilities. That was something that very important to the NDP. So again, the the NDP saying it's not, we can avoid an election and there are other ways to continue probing the we charity matter. Now, interestingly, I asked Jagmeet Singh yesterday, I said, you know, what do you think about this idea that Trudeau is trying to avoid getting his family involved, family members being, in this case, mother and brother. Sophie, because she's a spouse, she is covered by the Conflict of Interest Act. What she does, and I, I'm sure she must know this, and so must he, uh, her activity very much uh, sort of on the public record. In any event, Judge Mead Singh seemed to acknowledge that there, there should be some sorts of boundaries, that um, people who are not covered by the Conflict of Interest Act, family members outside that sort of immediate family yeah maybe that's inappropriate so Singh in my sense was saying okay we can draw a little boundary here but we're going to definitely want to have other questions answered about the we charity about bureaucrats decision there and why it went on and Rob you know I, I don't know about you but here's something else that I think is something we don't talk about in this mix do the vast majority of Canadians uh, is there a whole lot of questions they don't know about the We Charity? We know the government, uh, you know, screwed up, frankly, on awarding this contract. We know that the Trudeau family members got money from the We Charity to do these personal appearances. I think any political fallout has already been baked in. And so opposition MPs have every right to look, you know, do what investigations they want. But are we really going to find more smoking guns that we didn't already know about that would really change the whole playing field? I suspect not. But, again, opposition MPs have every right to say this is the information we want. I don't think that there's a whole lot of there there, if you know what I mean. But, again, uh, knock yourself out.
2: Well, and there, there still is the opportunity then for some of these existing committees, finance ethics in particular, to continue their work on on this yep. file. Of course, we had prorogation, which uh, which which knocked those commissions out of uh, committees out of business for a bit. We've seen some uh, filibuster and other delay tactics uh, from the liberals so with regard to the committees and and this work. But is is that where the focus is going to be now going forward? That the opposition parties are going to use these existing committees to try to to get some answers to some of these questions.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. In fact, the NDP have an alternate proposal that they're going to put before Parliament in terms of getting more information about the We Charity. But, but I think what you just touched on, I think is correct. I think there are existing processes in other standing committees of the House of Commons, the Finance Committee, Ethics Committee, to take a broader look at this. But what I suspect the opposition may do or, you know, maybe left to do is fold in uh investigations about the we charity into broader considerations about how the government has spent money uh during this time of pandemic some of it uh, a lot of canadians may say yes this spend money on that the CERB, for instance seems to be broad broad support for the spending the government has done on the canada emergency response benefit that really helped out uh, something like eight million canadians i mean it was a real lifesaver for a lot of people okay great but then there's other ways, and we come back to some of the stuff Michelle Rempel's focusing in on now, on the contracts to make sure we've got ventilators. Was our... Um, uh, the warehouses, did we have enough PPE in warehouses? Apparently we did not. And just recently... We have learned about a contract that the government awarded four ventilators, a contract worth $237 million that went to a Montreal firm whose subcontractor just happens to be a guy... Who a year ago was a member of the Liberal caucus, a guy named Frank Bayless. He was a Montreal MP for the Liberals. A year ago, he was sitting there with Justin Trudeau and lo and behold, the company he's working with has just got a big, you know, government contract worth $237 million for ventilators. Um, there are some MPs who would like to know a little bit more about that contract. So you can see that there's, there's other stuff besides the we charity that is, that is still ongoing, uh, still coming up. And I think MPs may, now put the We Charity matter sort of in that broad context of some of the other contracts and other spending that the government has been involved in. Well,
2: of course, full coverage of all of this, globalnews.ca. David, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Yeah, no problem. Cheers. All right, take care. David Akin, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Uh, So the latest on what's going on in the nation's capital, so the Conservatives bringing forward uh, a different motion, Uh, Probably won't be voted on until early next week, as David said. Uh, It doesn't appear as though at this point the liberals are are going to use this nuclear option and declare it to be a confidence motion. Uh, But uh, I guess one never knows. So the high stakes of yesterday, uh, things have maybe cooled off a little bit, but still some important questions, uh, I think, to be answered. Well, it's certainly something I think a lot of frustrated travelers were, were hoping to hear, waiting to hear some clarity from the airlines about the opportunity to get full refunds for canceled flights, not just credits, but actual refunds for the ticket price. So uh, earlier this week, WestJet announced that it will be giving full refunds for flights canceled because of the pandemic. Effective November 2nd, they say they will start refunding their customers. Now, it was uh, a bit of a strange spectacle on on social media as uh, Air Canada on Twitter uh, took aim at WestJet, saying, misleading statement. WestJet is just now catching up to our policy on refund refundable fares. WestJet responded to them. And so it's been a really weird and ugly back and forth between the two. What does it all mean to customers? It might seem on the surface that if the airlines are fighting over each other to have the best refund policy, maybe that's a good thing. Uh, But our next guest uh, doesn't think that that's the case. Uh, Dr. Gabor Lukacs is uh, president and founder of Air Passenger Rights. Joins us on the line here this afternoon. Gabor, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Good afternoon, Rob. It's great to be back.
2: All right. Well, I mean, is this at least a, a step in the right direction when it comes to customers being able to get refunds for canceled flights? What do you make of all this?
3: The law has always been and remains that passengers are entitled to, prov- to get a refund to the original form of payment when their flight is cancelled by the airline for any reason. The law hasn't changed. What has changed is that WestJet f- and the four other major Canadian airlines, Air Canada Air Transat, something and Soup, are facing a class action hearing, a certification hearing on the 2nd of November, coincidentally, in the federal court, and that hearing is very much coming up now. So... This is a very polite way of wedget to at least partially concede defeat in that case. To say, we acknowledge we have to refund this, and they are trying to make it look good in the media by claiming that it was voluntary. This refund is as voluntary as paying taxes is. Well, of course, you technically voluntarily transfer the money to CRA from your bank account when you pay your taxes, but it is not voluntary in the sense that, that if you were not doing that on your own volition, then the uh, you know, bailiff or whichever enforcement body you have um, the, the in, in the appropriate province would be knocking on your door and seizing your property, seizing your bank accounts. Uh,
2: so d- does this policy go far enough in your view? Does, does it affect all canceled flights, for example?
3: There are several problems with it, and let me just make a step back. It's not up to Wedget to decide whether they refund or not. It is the law that says that they have to refund. So they can have whatever policy they want. The law will still say that they have to refund passengers. So Wedget is making now a step toward compliance with the law. Uh, I would say that there are several problems here. One is with the vacation passengers. They are not covered by this new compliance of Wedget with the law. And I'm perplexed why they are not, they should be. I see no reason why to exclude them. There is also a contingency of passengers who were tricked into canceling their flights. They were uh, kind of induced on the phone or in some way to state on the yes, i canceling, even though their flights was actually canceled by WestJet. And there's a third group of people who, whose flight did operate, but they were unable to travel genuinely due to the uh, pandemic. And quite possibly those cases will be sorted out. We have to be sorted out in federal court.
2: Let's talk about Air Canada as well, and and they waded in and, and accused WestJet of, of just catching up to, to Air Canada's own policy. That, that They claim Air Canada has already been offering refunds. So what's your position on, on Air Canada's approach to this?
3: Air Canada has been deceiving the public and has been stealing the public's money because they have been refusing to refund tickets that where the flights were cancelled, but the tickets were labelled non-refundable, and they are misrepresenting the meaning of an unrefundable ticket to the public. An unrefundable ticket means that if the passenger decides not to travel, if the passenger decides to cancel their flight, then they don't get back a dime. But an unrefundable ticket still has to be refunded if it is the airline which fails to provide a the service. Air Canada has been simply not telling the truth to parliamentarians, not telling the truth to the public. They have been deceiving the public about this.
2: What about the, uh, the financial situation the airlines are in? And they both have certainly highlighted uh, the, the challenges they're facing as to, to why maybe there, there have been certain decisions made on, on this issue, on the issue of refunds. Is, is that something that the travelers should be at all sympathetic to? Is, is it relevant when it comes to the rules and the laws around offering refunds?
3: It is neither relevant nor, should, nor, nor true. I don't have a good understanding of WestJet finances because they are not public. I can tell you, however, that Air Canada's books don't look like they are on the brink of bankruptcy. They are just about to buy another airline, Air Transat. And the money that is used for that could quite easily be used to cover a substantial portion of the obligations to passengers that Air Canada has. They also have quite a bit of cash on their hands compared to some other airlines. So uh, in the case of Air Canada, the argument that they would suffer financially and they would go under if they offered a refund has no merit, as I understand. Even if it did, not having enough money is not an excuse for not paying your legal obligations. If you genuinely don't have enough money as a business, then uh, you have to go through the proper bankruptcy protection procedure or bankruptcy procedure. There's no third option. So. Uh, a company, uh, a, a debtor, cannot pick and choose which creditors they are going to pay and which creditors they are going to leave hanging. The, the law provides the proper procedure for that and if they are indeed insolvent, which there's no evidence so far there is, but if they are insolvent, then a bankruptcy court type of setting is the appropriate thing to decide who gets how much and what portion. That would also mean that some unfavorable contracts with respect to leases on aircraft, for example, could be reopened and renegotiated under the court supervision. It's not realistic to charge the same price for an aircraft as you would charge if, if you were using the aircraft, operating it for 12, 16 hours a day and, and making lots of money using it. So the that kind of comprehensive approach dealing with all issues that affecting a company is what normally bankruptcy court is for. If a, a company doesn't go that route, then they simply have to make Meet all their financial obligations, and the law doesn't recognize financial hardship as an excuse for not paying what
2: about the timeline too here for for processing refunds? so WestJet says they're going to start offering refunds, but they say it's going to take six to nine months to process those refund requests. What do you make of that
3: passengers don't have to put up with it, and I urge passengers not to put up with it. There are avenues through credit cards and especially through statutory chargeback where For example, if you purchase a ticket from WestJet online, and even if you are not in Alberta, because WestJet is an Alberta company, the the Alberta um, Consumer Protection Act and the regulations on internet sales contracts would apply, and the credit card company has to reverse the charges. If they don't, you claw back the money, And, and then it will be eventually the credit card company that will have to run after WestJet or whichever airline it is to recover the money.
2: All right, much more at uh, airpassengerrights.ca. Gabor, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
2: All right, take care. That is uh, Gabriel Lukacs. He is uh, founder and president of Air Passenger Rights, a uh, very vocal uh, passenger rights advocate. So his thoughts on what WestJet announced this week regarding refunds, the timeline of this plan, uh, and also the uh, kind of weird intervention uh, of of Air Canada into all of this. And, And to see the two airlines fighting it out on social media was a little strange. But I I think, yeah, a lot of travelers are in a tough spot because they were planning to travel. Things have changed dramatically. Uh, Flights have been canceled, obviously, as a result of the pandemic. And, you know, I I get the idea of the airlines trying to say, you know what, how about you just take a voucher? That way, you know, you can still fly later on when when things are are more back to normal. But we don't know when that's going to be. And obviously, there are people facing, you know, financial pressures themselves, and they, they just simply want their money back. And there should be an expectation, I think, that the airlines provide that. People can be sympathetic to their plight right now, and certainly these are not good times for the airline industry. Uh, But I think customers still have rights here too. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. So, look, this is getting a lot of attention. I want to get some clarification on, on what this is going to mean. For people who, who live in or who visit uh, areas where residential parking permits are required, uh, fees for on-street parking in those areas is something now that city council is going to be considering. A council committee has voted uh, five to four in favor of some of these changes. So it would be uh, on a sliding scale. Fees would start at $50 a year. For one street uh, parking spot, go up to 75 and $125 for additional vehicles. Visitor permits would cost $75. So, this will go before council next month. Uh, if approved, uh, it wouldn't be until 2022 that these fees would be applied. There are a total of 80 zones across Calgary, as the Calgary Herald describes, where permits are required for street parking. And most people who live in those areas have previously been able to get two resident passes and two visitor passes for free. So why is this potentially changing? Joining us uh, to talk more about all of this, I'm very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, City Councilor for Ward 12, Shane Keating, uh, joining us on the line here this afternoon. Uh, Councilor Keating, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
4: Well, no, thank you for asking, because uh, that's one of the critical things we don't often see in this business is people actually seeking the facts before they make a decision.
2: Okay, so what, what, what do people need to know, or what, what do you think is being left out of uh, the, the conversation around these proposed
4: changes? Well, the, the word required is, is interesting uh, to some degree, because what these zones are is they were actually areas where uh, people have lived, and for whatever reason, and I'll use Auburn Bay and my ward as an example, the uh, new hospital was built down there, uh, and across the street was Auburn Bay. And many of the construction uh, workers were parking all over the residential area. So they applied um, for a residential parking zone, which meant that uh, you had to be a resident to park there for an extended period of time because mm-hmm. uh, of the congestion and the work trucks and a number of these sorts of things. Now that has spilled over because if a employee of the hospital Um, is uh, wanting to park on site they're charged a certain fee you know the same as they would do in many of the office towers in in, in downtown or or wherever Um, and they've chosen to park in front of people's houses and walk two blocks rather than pay the parking uh, fee that they would pay to the hospital so that's how they were established for situations similar or or specifically like that
2: and obviously there's a cost to the city in enforcing these zones isn't there
4: well, there is. I mean, the Calgary Parking Authority, we've gone to the electronic uh, version now where before they had to come out, uh, manually walk the street to see if they had a pass hanging from the, their mirror, write a ticket, and, and that cost was uh, much, much higher than it is now. And the fact they could not physically uh, cover the whole area in, in these zones and uh, across the city. So they've gone to the camera uh, aspect, and of course that just goes through, and as we know, it, it, photographs and if any of the plates are not registered then they will mail out a ticket.
2: Okay. So as you say the the idea of these zones is that residents feel as though you know they they should be the ones to park on these streets and and that's that's kind of the idea here. So what what's going to change is this not going to mean that people who live in these zones would have to pay for these permits.
4: Yeah, so the the uh, we discovered actually that the the cost of just the annual uh, maintenance, so like uh, doing the registration, going through the process, giving out the uh, the permits to hang on the the mirrors, or registering them now online, um, cost uh, 1.4 million dollars over the revenue that was gained, uh, because there was no revenue coming in, and the revenue was in in fines for people who parked there who shouldn't be, um, and the city was paying. Uh, $1.2 million annually to just to administer this uh, aspect of allowing them to park. Now remember, uh, this is for people who choose to park on the street. Um, most residents have off-site or off-street parking on st- on-site. Uh, in example, in Auburn Bay, I own a condo and we have uh, one parking uh, stall underground. Um, so if I choose not to park there and I park on the street, I'm not so sure I should get a free pass. So this would be
2: then for people who require, you know, maybe for people who have more than one vehicle, for example.
4: Exactly, and and that would be the so their second vehicle or the third or fourth, uh, depending on where they live, and and there's another uh, situation in Mahogany, um, where uh, there are a number of semi-detached uh, across from a very large retail center, uh, and they all have double garages in the back alley, um, yet their street is always. Uh, jammed with people who are going to the commercial retail spot. So there they would like to have a residential zone, meaning that you can't park there for extended periods of time or for visitors because, uh, and, and that makes sense. Um, you know, but again, if they choose not to park in their garage or on their site, um, then, uh, they might have, uh, like you said, two or three, or they may choose not to because their garage is full. And we see an awful lot now of home-based businesses operating out of garages as well. So that 's the essence of of where I think the extra passes come from
2: so it might also have an impact on residents of a certain neighborhood applying to be one of these zones uh, is Is that part of the, the the rationale for this maybe is to to really see if if people are serious about wanting this in their neighborhood
4: no i think if if you 're actually being open and fair about it, um, the rest of the city is subsidizing uh, residents being able to park in front of their uh, their house, you might say, for whatever reason. Um, it could be, as I said, retail. It could be because, uh, you know, you take Kensington and a number of these or it could be a uh, very large uh, business like the the South Health Campus or in Quarry Park is another example where you have a lot of employment centres and people were choosing to park in front of people's houses all day uh, and then walk to work a couple blocks, uh, you know, and those sorts of things. So what we're saying is the rest of the Calgarians are paying $1.4 million on an annual basis um, to allow these people to park in front of their houses.
2: Uh, as I understand, though, in terms of the process of, of getting approval for a new zone, th- this, would, um, this would take it out of the hands of city council, so administration would be able to, to set this up themselves if 80% of people living in an area want this?
4: Yeah, and, I mean, that's the process. And what happens now, it's an actual bylaw. And, of course, all bylaws have to come to council. And when you're looking at red tape and reducing it and and trying to find savings, now, the $1.4 million is the annual cost of just operating the zones once they're established. Um, Before they're established, there's a a fair bit of time, and whether it's thousands of hours that go through the process, because they have to write a report, they have to do some uh, testing to see what the parking is like, they have to take the survey um, and then they have to bring it to council and then of course you get presentations at council and people are able to speak at council, uh, you know, either in favor or against bylaw and a number of these things. So that 1.4 million has none of those costs. And so what we're saying is we really should reduce those costs as well. Um, and, and I, as a council member who would hope would be uh, making decisions on more important things, uh, once you get 80% of the resident's area saying we need a parking zone and it's been evaluated, I don't think I need to make that decision. I think it can be in the hands of the administration because they're not, uh, as it has been suggested by uh, some councillors, they're not willy-nilly making decisions here. You still need 80% of the residents saying we want this.
2: All right. Uh, so this has been approved by committee, goes to council. Uh, do, do we know when this is uh, set to be voted on?
4: Um, I'm not sure what day uh, it'll come, but goes to committee and it usually comes to the next or the very next council meeting after that committee. So uh, it uh, wouldn't be on the 26th, which is organization. So I'm guessing the first part of November.
2: All right. Well, we'll see how that vote goes. Uh, Councilor Keating, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thank you. All right. That is Ward uh, war 12 city council, Shane Keating, uh, explaining uh, as he sees that the rationale for taking this kind of an approach uh, that costs the city about one and a half million dollars a year uh, to Approve these these zones, to patrol, to enforce these zones, th- these zones, and that maybe there should be some kind of user pay component. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Thursday afternoon, 403-974-8255 is our number. Uh, As mentioned, we're going to get an update in about an hour from uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, Chief Medical Officer uh, of Health, and we'll have that live for you Got a few other things to get to uh, before we wrap up for today. Right now, they want to take a a look at at a fascinating uh, bit of history, Uh, certainly very much relevant uh, to the UK, but I think to a large extent to us as well. Uh, The story of uh, GCHQ. Government Communication Headquarters, very innocuous-sounding name. Of course, before that, uh, was known as Government Code and Cipher School, even more innocuous. Uh, this is the uh, British intelligence and security organization, does the signals intelligence, and yeah, I mean a big part of of its history. And I think we we think of World War II and Bletchley Park and the code breaking. As a big part of that history. Maybe more recently, of course, people would be familiar with the leaked documents in, in 2013. The Edward Snowden affair uh, certainly brought the, uh, the organization to the forefront. A uh, University of Calgary historian was, uh, was tasked by the agency, was recruited to write the official history uh, of the GCHQ, and was given access to, um, well, pretty much everything, uh, some 16 million. Pages of documents. And uh, his work has been completed. Uh, the uh, project is called Behind the Enigma, the Authorized History of GCHQ, Britain's Secret Cyber Intelligence Agency. John Ferris, the author of that book, Professor of History at the University of Calgary, Jones is on the line here this afternoon. Professor Ferris, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Glad,
0: glad to be here, Rob.
2: Uh, and congratulations on finally finishing this project. I know it was it was quite an endeavor on your part. Uh, let's Hallelujah. take a step back. Uh, take us back to kind of the beginning, how, how this all came
0: about in the first place and, and how you felt about approaching this. Well, I've been working as an historian in British Signal Intelligence since about 1980. So I'm the, the person who's been doing it the longest. When I started out, the documents supposedly were entirely weeded. In other words, they weren't in the public domain. But I figured I had to find some of them. And over the years, I simply researched, published. It caught the attention of the people who are interested in history, in GCHQ, and also the National Security Agency, which is the American equivalent. And so I've been associated with them in an unclassified sense for a long time. They offered me the position, I guess it would have been 2015, when they decided that they were going to have to become more open than they'd done before. Partly the effect of the Snowden leaks, partly the fact that their work was becoming increasingly public. They were dealing with cyber threats, cyber criminals, foreign governments that were attacking individual British people or firms. And in order to do that work, they had to be open and therefore the public had to know who they were and what they were doing. So they took advantage of the fact that their centenary was occurring to commission a history and offered it to me and of course I said yes and so what was that process like Um,
2: were you surprised by anything you learned or just how much there was to go through what what was this
0: like for you first of all there's a huge amount and I could never have seen everything that is is there second if anything really surprised me it was the fact that once I started getting into details of who they had working for them how few university graduates they had in the Cold War. That's different today. Really, outside of the crypto-mathematicians who were all recruited from a very small number of elite British universities, there were not that many university graduates. And in fact, as I came to realize, they'd worked at a means whereby you could take school leavers or working-class young men who were civilians or soldiers and basically give them highly specialized jobs, which would normally expect to require a lot of education, and also let them rise to middle management positions. So actually, they made extremely effective use of people with basically a grade 10 to 12 education and gave these people social status, et cetera, et cetera. So really, you know, the British have this reputation for being... You know, class-bound, but I can tell you in the case of GCHQ, not really.
2: It's interesting. I read uh, an article, uh, one of the articles, I think it was BBC, uh, talking about your book, and, and you talk about what, what you see as kind of a uh, the the cult of Bletchley Park, and and that's a, obviously a big part of the GCHQ story, is World War Two uh, and uh, cracking the Enigma code and and all of these code breakers, and there's, there is certainly this this aura, this mythology that's been built up around that that had turned the the course of the war. So why do you refer to it as as the cult of Bletchley?
0: Because what happened over the years is the British people began to associate Bletchley with their survival and victory in the war. And in the process, the British, I think, ultimately overrated the significance of Bletchley. Now, don't get me wrong. In fact, I have to say that the most interesting work I did was trying to reconstruct how Bletchley worked, because it's the most amazing organization I've ever had to deal deal with. But in the end, the real point is that Britain was a very powerful state. It had good leadership. Its allies, like us in the United States, were also powerful. And in that context, good intelligence multiplied great power. And so the end result is that we used good intelligence to hasten the defeat of Germany. But Britain didn't survive because of Blackburn. It really just hastened the war. And I would say we're talking about hastening the war by several months, reducing our Western allied military casualties by tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of people. Now, that's a very good thing. But nonetheless, you know, it's not the war winner on its own is the best way to phrase it. But certainly in terms of doing this kind of intelligence,
2: uh, whether, whether it's uh, GCHQ or the NSA or, or even, you know, the Canadian equivalent, you know, how, how much different were things after World War II as, as compared to before?
0: Well, first of all, SIGINT becomes far bigger than it had been before. Um, in 1938, the British have around 1,000 people all told doing all forms of SIGINT. And after 1945, about 10 times that many, the Americans have maybe a 1,000 in 1938, and they're hitting 100,000 by say 1974 so the, sh- the sheer numbers of people involved in the task increased dramatically and bletchley basically creates the means by which you mathematize code breaking and apply what ultimately become computers to attacking it and that's how code breaking is done in the cold war it basically relies on mathematics and computers the other thing it relies on are huge numbers of people who specialize in living within the radio networks of the enemy. So there are tens of thousands of British and American sig enters who spend 30 years of their lives monitoring the traffic of a specific Soviet corps or army. And they're so used to the way these people communicate on a given day that they can notice any changes in their behavior. If you can notice a change in behavior, then you know something has to be reported or dealt with. So what you end up are far larger, and I'd say far better signals intelligence agencies, and they're widespread. I mean, there are lots of NATO countries or non-NATO countries that have very good SIGINT agencies. Israel develops a very good one. Ours is good. So when you put it all together, there are far more and better signals intelligence personnel during the Cold War and today than ever before. And what makes today unusual, and from our, our point of view as individuals, very unpleasant, is that SIGINT is no longer just something that states do. There are, to my very rough guess, millions of entities in the world that can do some form of SIGINT. You know, phishing is a kind of SIGINT, in a way. And when you're looking at people who can actually read your messages, there are probably... Tens of thousands of cyber criminals who have the capability of doing that, let alone foreign states. And we are all targets of that in a way that wasn't possible in the Cold War. No foreign government could intercept my letters sent by Canada Post in 1984. And if I was making a telephone call by landline, no foreign government could intercept it either. But today, there's not a single form of digital or cell phone communication that I use that cannot be intercepted by some potentially hostile entity.
2: Yeah, It's a different world, isn't it? I mean, we shifted from targeting the Nazis to targeting the Soviets, but now it's 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 quite a different situation. Now, there are state actors. China, obviously, is an example, but you know, whether it be terrorism, cybercrime, there's a lot that these agencies are trying to deal with.
0: Absolutely. In fact, what's happened is we've gone from a state-to-state practice to a state-in-society versus state-in-society practice. Foreign governments, and I'm sure we too, are using cyber means to conduct subversion in foreign countries. I mean, the British and Americans two days ago announced that they had proof, and I'm sure it's all significant, of Soviet preparations to conduct cyber war against the recent olympic games that were supposed to be held in japan and then were Mm cancelled we're dealing with a world where subversion of elections or anything else attacks on our individual bank accounts um attempts to steal commercial secrets are all part of the daily practice of states and i'm afraid that's not going to change it's interesting.
2: 1946 is the year uh, that uh, the GCHQ name was adopted. That was the same year that Canada established the Communications Security Establishment. And, and I guess, and as an aside, I, I assume these rather innocuous names are, are very much by design. Is, is that the case? Of course. Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> Government Communications Headquarters was adopted as an alternative title for GCNCS in 1942 because suddenly in Bletchley Park, you have this big organization growing out of the blue. Uh, near a railway station. And so the simplest solution the British can find is if they call it Government Communications Headquarters, this will explain all the radio aerials, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, know, innocuous mm-hmm. names are part and parcel of the day. <laughs>
2: um, but, you know, as, given the fact that we were obviously World War II allies, Cold War allies, part of the Five Eyes uh, Strategic Alliance, um I, I, I suspect we still keep secrets among ourselves. What's your sense of how open, how uneasy at times, whether it's Canada-UK or the U.S.-UK, uh, how, how solid that alliance is?
0: At the moment, I'd say it's very solid, although I can also tell you lots of sig say to me that they're not certain the Five Eyes will last the next 20 years. The thing about it is it's a direct continuation of the military alliance of the Second World War. The SIGINT alliance of the Second World War never ends. When Germany and Japan stop fighting, immediately SIGINT is turned to attacking Russian traffic. And the British and Americans make a calculated decision. They say, if we treat each other as enemies, we're going to have to spend a lot of effort against each other, and we'll all be weaker against the Russians. But if we cooperate with each other closely then we can all work together against the russians and what emerges is this treaty not a treaty it's an arrangement called ukusa which essentially means that american greater enters cooperate deeply on all levels they share almost everything they give each other material that neither of them will give to their own diplomats Or human intelligence, or military people, and that's the same with with CSE, our organization too. And so, in other words, they're actually trusting each other more than they are their own other national authorities, and that trust has worked out basically for all of us in the Cold War and since. Um, Whether it will continue is an open question. I would say that its history during the Cold War and afterward is one which did all of us very much good, especially Canada and Australia, because we got far more out of the arrangement than we put into the pot. But the mere fact that we put things into the pot allowed us to draw things from the pot.
2: Well, I guess it's a history that's still being written in many ways, but uh, this project is complete. The book is called Behind the Enigma, the Authorized History of GCHQ, Britain's secret cyber intelligence agency. John Ferris, it's been great talking to you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Take you as well that is uh, John Harris professor of history at the University of Calgary um, who uh, yes was, was awarded this uh, really important task and responsibility to tell this authorized history uh, again the book is called Behind the Enigma thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast don't forget to subscribe rate and review for free at Apple Podcasts Google Play or wherever you find your podcast you can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge you can email me Rob at 770CHQR.com Talk to you next
1: time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.